0: appreciate or reminded of this morning the plan of salvation that's been put in place the opportunity that's ours to wear the name of christ the opportunity to be a member of the blessed body of christ all of that should bring a smile to her face in eternal appreciation for the goodness that's been given to us as was made note in the bulletin as well as the brief announcement before the as it related to the lesson a moment ago we will continue our journey through the book of colossians this evening As we have studied through this book, we have so far looked at some five lessons as it related to the book of Colossians. And on this occasion, as we look now at one of the critical elements to be found in chapter 3, I'd invite your attention to that chapter, specifically this evening as we begin our study in verse number 5 and continue it on to verse 17 in that chapter, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17. By way of introduction, part of which might be a bit of a memory element, We have learned already some things concerning a few of the items that I'd like to mention at this point. So far, the greatness of Christ having been set before us. I understand that as often as we maybe have mentioned that, nonetheless, we should understand that it is not an idle point. The world has ever been of a mindset to drift away from Christ, to allow other matters, be they material or otherwise, to take the place of the Savior. When all the while, Paul reminds again and again the Colossians that he is your life. You're complete in him. He has all preeminence. And those kinds of thoughts will in fact continue onward throughout this book. And on this evening as we look beginning in verse number 5 of chapter number 3, I've asked you to to remember with me some of the things about the central nature that he feels. That is Jesus in terms of the nature of the church, in terms of the nature of the life of the Christian, in terms of the center point, in fact, in all of even human history. In fact, if we recall one of the lessons we learned in the study of Revelation just a few months ago, we remember in chapter 5 of that book, when in fact John had that tremendous and overwhelming vision, there was a right hand in the book of, uh, uh, a book in the right hand of God, And inasmuch as that book ultimately was taken and Jesus alone was worthy to open the seals and to reveal its contents and to, in fact, set forth the greatness of what was contained therein, we learn one of the vital lessons to be he is the centerpiece in all of time. When Jesus is removed from the important position he has, even historically, history doesn't make much sense. But when put in place and the providential nature of the God of heaven is inserted and utilized to answer questions and provide guidance, history begins to take on a tenor and a golden thread that weaves a beautiful and powerful message. Even so with the Colossians, the central nature of Jesus illustrated by his preeminence. And the very bottom of that screen, might we notice that the reading that Brother Lucas read a few moments ago had to do with the new man, And that'll be the title of the lesson tonight. The New Man from Colossians 3, verse number 10. The idea of newness is something that is rather often an an intriguing thing. We perhaps visit the local Walmart or another hardware store nearby, and often what captures our attention is that label on something that declares it to be new and improved. Something's new, it is purportedly better than what it has been in the past. With regard to that which is new, the New Testament has much to say, and we shall focus our efforts on the new man as it is presented in the discussion this evening. Along the way, beginning in verse number 5, though, there are many terms that are used to describe this new man. And so in many ways, tonight's lesson will be filled with vocabulary. By and large, as we come to sense the description that the inspired apostle gives, we will need to understand that we should be similarly described these matters that describe the new men in Colossae should describe the new people at the Pippin congregation too. Beginning in verse number 5, let's read verses 5 through 11. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, into which we also walked sometime when we lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him." Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. With that reading in place, which is the first segment, if you will, of our reading this evening, I would focus your efforts with me, beginning again in verse five, and note the clarity with which Paul, in fact, orders or beseeches the Colossians to follow a particular style of life. Mortify therefore your members. As one makes a decision as to where would be the best occasion to divide a given lesson by way of the Scriptures, there are times that that's easy and there are times that's more challenging. The word therefore rather obviously links this text to some that preceded it. That's a conclusion word. It's a summary statement. Notice that what had just preceded it in verse 4 was this. When Christ who is our life shall appear... Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Our life. Paul makes no reason for argumentation. Christ is the life of the Colossians, and he should be my life and yours as well. Our life should be built squarely upon him. After all, he is head of the church, Colossians one eighteen, And as we noted earlier, he's the foundation for life, 1 Corinthians 3.11. For wasn't it stated then that other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus? The foundational nature thus of Christ sets the entire nature of our thinking, our actions, the places we visit, all that is done, are brought into captivity to the very nature of Jesus. Second Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5. That idea is the very one mentioned thus here in verse 5. If Christ is the center point of my life and yours, if he is the absolute one providing the guidance, the direction, all the matter of thinking and motivation, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. That word mortify means put to death. In fact, that's the literal Greek meaning for for that term. We often use a term much like that one, at least in a way, when we think about a mortuary or a mortician. Uh, that's that individual who deals with corpses and takes care of the remains and the various matters concerning life. Paul said Colossians, mortify, put to death those elements that are earthly, carnal, sensual, in character. So much so that he begins to make an inspired listing of the elements that were on his mind. Verse 5, fornication, that's a rather broad term, porneia is the Greek term, it simply has to do with sexual immorality regardless of which form that it may appear in. And we understand the broadness of that term would of course not only touch things like homosexuality, but of course what we might well term adultery, sexual relations outside of a scriptural marriage, all of that is covered underneath the umbrella of the term fornication as it's listed here. But he quickly moves on and says uncleanness. That word sounds much more general. In what way is uncleanness to be specified? And in what way is it to be understood? I have listed for your consideration simply the Greek meaning of that word as it herein appears. Notice as it relates to impurity, immorality impure motives the understanding that in life there is a powerful element of purity that the Savior enjoins upon us keep thyself pure is what Paul told Timothy was it in first Timothy five twenty-two? the desire the injunction to live a life of wholeness and soundness and soberness and appropriateness indeed that can be a high challenge in the world in which we live but nonetheless it is enjoined upon us it has often been remarked of the glorious grandness of the purity that Jesus lived his life. When others saw the Savior, there was no cause nor capability to allege various degrees of immorality on his part. Similar thing should be able to be said of us. But quickly notice also inordinate affection. The third thing in this inspired listing, that word simply means lustful desire. How often does the Bible encourage us to understand the strong nature of lust? We well know that in his omnipotent nature, God instilled within you and me the various propensities of life. There are feelings and there are various capabilities and often desires in and of themselves when controlled and properly exercised. God certainly didn't make anything that was evil. Notice though here, Paul does note of inordinate passions or lustful desires. When we allow ourselves to give in, allow our thoughts to allow us to pursue on toward fulfilling the deeds of these lustful passions and desires, we have gone too far. We have stepped beyond the bounds of cleanness, if you will. Paul warns the Colossians to be on guard for that. How well our thoughts might turn to the city of Corinth. In the book that we call First Corinthians Paul rather directly pointed out to us the nature of that ancient city, how that it was licentious, lascivious, how it was a city given over to all the lustful propensities of life, and quite often they were lived unrestrained in any way. The church in Corinth was warned that is not to be the life of a Christian. Nothing along that line has changed, has it? That still is not the life that would be pleasing unto God. The next one to be listed is perhaps a term that we're even far less familiar with, evil concupiscence. That's one of those terms that was rather prevalent in 1611 when the King James translation was put in place. But I'd submit that probably few, if any of us, ever use that term on a daily basis in casual conversation, concupiscence. I've helped us consider what that means by noting again the definition. It simply means an evil longing an evil desire, an evil passion. Note again those passions that are within us. When checked and properly exercised and utilized in the boundaries that God has set forth, those are not inappropriate. It's when we allow ourselves to cut loose, to sow our wild oats, if you will, and to do those things that themselves are not appropriate, the fulfillment of this evil concupiscence those are the very things that Paul not only warned against but in fact commanded against do you and i not live in an age and in a time when so often the teaching and the way in which many choose to live is an unrestrained fulfillment of every sex sensual sexual desire that the body may have such only will lead it along the pathway of ruin it was not good for the family it's not good for the nation Obviously, it isn't good with, with the perspective of eternity hanging in the balance. We thus are warned that we must remain in control. Not only that, in, in remaining in, in control, but to do so appreciating that it's not just wise things. These are commanded. We, if we are ever to be pleasing before God, must so live, having mortified these things. Put them to death. In the language of Ephesians 5, verse 3, which is a sister passage to this one, Paul, in writing to the Ephesian congregation, made note to them, such things ought not even be named among those who are saints. Thus it ought, ought not be talked about in the sense that no one should even think about doing things like this. That's a rather strong statement about the nature of where our mindset ought to be. As he quickly moves to the end of verse number five, he last lists covetousness which he defines by an appositive as being that of idolatry. How often the Bible warns on this nature of idolatry. And can we not see that even in the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, there was a strong inclination to encourage the Israelites in regard to this too. Thou shalt not covet the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Might we understand thus that it was not only in our materialistic age of today thousands of years ago there was still that desire to have what others have and perhaps even to go at great length to acquire it on this occasion isn't it fascinating how it is identified as idolatry and so today when you and I desire something perhaps that someone else has so much so that we would go to virtually any length to acquire it even stepping beyond the bounds of appropriateness and that which is scriptural At the most basic level, what we have chosen to do is elevate something above God. And that makes us an idolater. The very thing that Jeremiah so often cautioned those of his day about. In fact, on occasion, he asked them with almost a degree of hilarity, have you given serious thought to what you're doing? You bow down to a hunk of wood that you've carved with your own hands. It can't hear you, it can't see you, it can't help you, and yet you worship it. Ought it not be much better to bow before one who does hear you, who does see you, and who can help you? Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 10. Those kinds of thoughts, when thought of in that fashion, are very thought-provoking, aren't they? And yet, cannot you and I be just as guilty? It may not well not be a chunk of wood that we carve, but we can easily elevate our job money, our bank account, perhaps a friend, others here on earth that are not God, and any time we place them at the highest elevation of priority in life, we have done the same thing as those idolatrous Israelites described in Jeremiah chapter 10. As Paul makes note then of these matters here, isn't it interesting that he does not cease though at that point? Having listed these things which they were to put to death, notice in verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Is it the case that God will on that day of judgment turn and look with what we're told to be great love and just ignore the various sins and ignore the various transgressions of His will? We can rest assured that though there may be some in our world who tell us that's what will happen, it will not be that way. Paul said, I'm telling you, Colossians, the wrath of God will come upon the children of disobedience, those guilty of these very things. We delude ourselves, then, if we think that a just God will ignore the character of the transgression of His will and will ultimately usher in virtually everyone into heaven, for that will not be what takes place. Who else besides our Savior should know that? When He said... Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Those are very sobering, reflective thoughts, aren't they? And do they not, in fact, bring us rather quickly to verse 7? In the which we also walked sometime when ye lived in them... You might note if you're in the habit of doing so that the King James translators chose to use the word we as the fourth word in that verse when in fact the Greek text actually does not have that in first person. It is actually in in a different person. It really should be you rather than we. Paul wasn't including directly himself as one who had committed these kinds of transgressions. Rather, he, in fact, notes in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. Notice with me that the Colossians had been guilty of things like this, at least some of them. But isn't it a marvelous thing to behold that in chapter 2 he had also said, You've been washed. Furthermore, you have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Thus, at one time they had been cleansed from such things it would appear that some had begun to slip backward into the life of apostasy from from the Heavenly Father. That leads us to notice in verse number 8, which takes us to the next slide in our discussion this evening. The notion that as Paul continues, he says, But now ye also put off all these, after having discussed things that were to be put to death, he now lists some things that were also to be put off. That is, these two are to be carefully watched, set aside, and not pursued as those, in, uh, as those who would be followers of Jesus. Among that list, notice he says, verse number 8, anger. Oh, how interestingly you and I can ponder the character of anger even in our own lives. Can you and I not see there are times when we become rather agitated? Someone will do or say something and it catches us at the wrong time and the wrong frame of mind and we say things that we later regret that we said. Perhaps we do things that we later wish we had not. Maybe we've each experienced things like that at one time or another. May we quickly say that anger itself is one of those propensities of the flesh that God has created and in and of itself... Anger is not an evil thing. For after all, didn't Paul say in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and sin not. It is when we allow that anger to boil within us and fester to the point that it leads or we allow it to lead to places that we ought not go. That may well be things done or things said, indications given. Thus, we each need the fervent warning to watch our anger to be those who are not so quick to fly off the handle to the point that we bring reproach to the name of Jesus, the very one whom we serve, the very one who saved us. In addition to anger, there is wrath. Isn't it interesting to consider the way that wrath is itself defined? It has to do with rage, intense feeling. Do you know of someone who perhaps can fly into an almost fitful rage and it can almost be a frightening thing? We are warned, watch the element of wrath, so much so that other texts help us to see that the controlling of our temper, to bring it into subjection to the point where the anger is not allowed to lead to sinful behavior, that's an important lesson for each of us. As he goes on, we shall have opportunity to revisit some of these throughout the course of of this verse. But if we would discuss malice, which is the next one that he lists... Malice has to do with evil, hateful feelings. We each might hope that we would have matured to the point that we could overcome the possibility of having actual hateful, evil thoughts towards someone else, to wish evil things to come upon them. But might we remember that in times of anger or in great elements of disturbance, we might in a weaker moment be given to such and we're reminded we need to put put that away. In fact, in 1st. Peter 2 verse 1, on that same occasion there, Peter warned about setting aside malice and take the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. He thus gives an alternative rather than letting wrath and malice and envy well up within us. Fill that void in your life with those matters taught in the word of God. That wholesome goodness, that nature of those eternal things that shall lead to a far better person for each of us. These warnings, notice, continue on with blasphemy in verse 8. Evil speaking, speaking to the point that it is against God. There are times in the Bible when blasphemy against God is identified. It would seem that at times there's actual almost slanderous discussion about the character of one toward another. As we notice, in an element of lovingness, it is not our desire to tear down another person. We should teach them in love, but that doesn't mean we beseech their character. We try to insult them or out of envy or bitterness try to do something purposefully to hurt them. These kinds of things apparently to some extent had become common, at least occurring amongst the Colossian brethren. As verse 8 closes, filthy communication out of your mouth. That element, of course, is ever as needful today as it ever was. How often do you and I hear about those profane, obscene, vulgar descriptions and words that can so readily fly from the mouth of those that you and I may know? Notice Paul said that filthy things like that coming out of their mouth is what should be put off, done away with. It is a sad thing to hear the language that's often employed, and not merely by adults, Quite often, younger folks who have heard their parents speak very vile and unworthy things to be spoken can often mouth those same things. It's a tragedy. It is an absolute catastrophe language. In the sister epistle of Ephesians, Paul there commanded in verse 29 of chapter 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. One of the things that you and I should appreciate about the language we choose to use is to pass it through the litmus test of this. Will it bring grace to those that hear me? Now that doesn't mean it can't challenge and correct and rebuke, for we're also given command to do that. But if it brings about no element or character of grace to any regard, it may well be better left unsaid. In fact, to check our tongue and to check our language is a rather powerful thing, isn't it, that all of us need to be reminded of often, frequently, and also very regularly. As we close verse number 8, notice that real quickly in verse number 9, he says, Lie not one to another. There's that falsehood, the telling of lies, to speak that which is not true. Inasmuch as we notice that, again, that's not just something that we face in our day, it was also prevalent in Paul's day. And he urged them, lie not. Direct commandment. Do not lie one to another. Can we not see the usefulness thus of basing not only our life, but of course our thinking as well as our speech upon the truth? And to let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. James 5 verse 12, Matthew 12 verses 36 and 7. Regardless which way one looks about that matter of lying, the scriptures do not condone it. Amongst those, Revelation 21, eight that shall not enter heaven, liars will head the list. How significant it is to remember thus the critical character of stating that which is truthful. As verse number 9 comes to its conclusion, we notice in verse 10 that there's a reference to the new man. After having stated these things to do away with, these things to mortify, these things to put off, he now says, and put on. It's not only a matter of avoiding that which is negative. The Christian religion is also about accentuating the positive. Not only does one remove the negative, he must fill his life with a positive. Thus he says in verse number 10, and have put on the new man. And there's that newness. What we've used to title the lesson tonight. You might be interested to note that the word man is in italics in the King James translation. That means that our, that our translators supplied that word. The actual rendering is, of course, something like this. And have put on the new. Have you and I put on that which is new? Have we pursued not this which is negative and this which is to be mortified, but to pursue that which is new and to make into ourselves by the power of God that which God would wish us to be. To pursue that which is new, which he himself says is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. It is not an incidental reference to knowledge, is it? It does matter what we know. Though there may be some who would tell us differently, such cannot be supported and upheld by the teaching of God's word. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in fact, the first 14 verses of that chapter, Peter labored at length to remind the careful hearers of his day of the glorious wonder of knowledge. Notice he said, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. There was something to be said for instilling into one's mind the truth on the subjects, not only of of eternity, but all the doctrines that would go along with truthfulness in this life. Knowledge. Thus, we notice here that this new man is renewed in knowledge. We notice this morning in our lesson that as one considers the plan of salvation, Notice that hearing was an element of every one of those accounts that we discussed. The five first cases of conversion. They all heard something. Is it not then any surprise that Jesus and the God of heaven have chosen to share forth the word by preaching? Romans 10 verses 13 to 15. Where on that occasion Paul was able to say, How shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? It's important to hear. We need to hear the truth and allow it to in, fill our lives with the greatness of its nature. And not only to fill our lives, but then we might obey in full character of that which we have learned. This new man, having been renewed and set forth in this way, reminds us that when you and I were baptized, we became new creatures. Does not Paul say that old things are passed away? Behold, all things are become new 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And in the Hebrew letter, are we not reminded in chapter 13 about the newness that corresponds to the covenant that we have now chosen to obey and follow once we become Christians? There is a newness. The world has nothing to compete with the newness that God offers. The world has nothing. Walmart doesn't, Kmart doesn't, no chain, whatever, can compare with the newness that God has to offer through His Son. That newness of life in which we walk, Romans 6 verse 4, is a newness that words itself sometimes fail for us to fully appreciate. Let's look further, though, at the newness that's set forth here. For in verse number 11, he says, "...where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian bond or free, but Christ is all and in all." This newness is equally accessible to all people. As often as we've noted it, that still is good news. In the Old Testament regime under the law of Moses, one by and large had to be born an Israelite to be an Israelite. It was true now that one could proselyte to the Hebrew religion, but far more often than not, one was born into the Hebrew religion. Today, how blessed we are to understand that it matters not if one is barbarian, Scythian, Jew, or Greek. The gospel of Christ is for every person Thankfully, all of us here, no matter what our ethnic background might be, what our mother tongue may be that we speak, the gospel is for you and me. Paul made that note to the Colossians, and how wonderful that note still remains 20 centuries later. In closing verse number 11, much could be said about the specifics of those that Paul lists, those barbarians, those Scythians, but perhaps a different lesson would be better to focus upon them. Paul has made his point. This new man is one who has put off these various things he's listed and has been overcome with the knowledge that God has revealed through his Son. Let's go on to see what else that means beginning in verse 12. Let's read verses 12 through 17. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. As we notice another listing quickly comes before us, let us notice some of the things to be noted here. For just as surely as we had noted the newness that was begun to be described, he now in verse 12 and 13 lists some of the elements that should characterize that new life that is to be mine and yours. As we discuss each of these, we can each thus ask the question, does that describe my life? Am I a person that can be described with a word like that? If we find that the answer cannot be given in the affirmative, we might should think carefully and very seriously about putting on and adding that more thoroughly to our life. Verse twelve. As those who are the elect of God, you and I, in responding to the gospel call of invitation, are those who are God's elect, Romans eight, twenty-nine. We are those who have come to appreciate his gift, if you will, the gift of his son. And by following the plan of salvation, are a member of those who are the elected ones, as described in First Peter chapter one, verses two and three. But on this occasion, he goes on to call us holy and beloved. Isn't it interesting that you and I can correctly be called holy? That is not a term that must be simply reserved for certain ones that men may vote and thus call them holy. There's no vote to it. Holy and beloved, these saints in Colossae were certainly able to be called holy and beloved because they were the elect of God. Inasmuch as you and I also are the elect of God, we are cautioned to ever remember 1 Peter 1.16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In the same way that God is holy, we are admonished to be His followers and thus also be holy. And how beloved we are as those who have chosen to follow the words of the unspeakable gift of His Son, 2 Corinthians 9.15. Put on therefore bowels of mercies, that is to say a heart of pity, or to put that in other words, a heart of mercy and compassion. How often are we reminded throughout the scriptures that it is not to be a cold and uncaring person that is descriptive of you and me but to have a heart that can be touched by the difficulties and afflictions and oppressions that others may face. Was it not noted by Jesus himself in the closing verses of Matthew 10 that even if we give a cup of cold water in his name to that person that's thirsty, he will not in any sense ignore the beauty and simplicity of of that gesture on our part to have a heart of compassion. Did not Jesus himself teach the parable in Luke the 10th chapter of that Samaritan, the Good Samaritan? Though we'll not read the entirety of it, we will remember how that proceeded. That man that was left half dead and beaten by the thieves on the road to Jericho was such that Jesus ultimately asked, which one was the neighbor of this man? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And that lawyer who had asked the question said, the one that showed mercy. Jesus said, Go, and do thou likewise. The Lord taught thus to have a heart of compassion, the capability to be touched with the difficulties that others experience, and to share forth a degree of helpfulness when it's within our capability to do so. That thought continues, though, by noting kindness, the element of kindness. Wasn't it true in the Old Testament that kindness was described as such a noble attribute a man shall be known by his kindness, Proverbs 19. Others know how you and I are about kindness. If we have any interest in aiding those that are our fellow individuals upon earth, notice that humbleness of mind, however, is also listed. Humility. It is always the case we're admonished to be humble, are we not? God does not desire that you and I elevate ourselves to a point beyond that which is appropriate, but rather to be humble. That humility, of course, continues with both meekness and long suffering. in this verse. Meekness simply has to do with this, gentleness. You and I should then not be those that are known for his or her abrasiveness, for the capability of simply sharing forth a degree of gentleness in the way we're able to interact with others. Patient is the word for long-suffering. Maybe we each also could continue to pray for our own level of patience. For is not it true how often that's beneficial to us in dealing with others, the problems and the questions we often face? Inasmuch as that is mentioned here, verse 13 mentions forbearing one another. That word simply has to do with bearing with others. We know that we each are different in the sense that there are different mindsets, backgrounds, and approaches to matters. Bear with or endure with one another. Notice, though, that he says, and forgiving one another. Of course, we know how often the New Testament subject of forgiveness is mentioned and how important that is for each of us. In fact, we are taught that God will not forgive us if we are unwilling to forgive others. Matthew six fourteen and 15. When others thus do something against us, sinning against us, and they ask our forgiveness, we, according to Christ himself, should have a mindset not only willing, but anxious to forgive them of that which they've done against us. On one occasion, Peter asked, how many times do we forgive? Until seven times? The Lord said, that's not enough. Until 70 times 7, Jesus said, symbolically indicating it's an unlimited number. In terms of how often your brother beseeches your forgiveness, we must have a heart willing to forgive. Verse 13 closes, Even as Christ forgave you. You and I know that God forgave us through Christ. In fact, we're taught in Ephesians 4.32 that the same kind or heart of forgiveness should quickly be those that, that rest upon us, the capability, the willingness to forgive others. With that said, above all things, verse 14, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. As we list that one, notice that he says, above all these things, to be guided and guarded as love is tempered with obedience. Might we remember that we're admonished to preach the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Thus, as we preach to others and teach and share all that God would wish us to share, it is not with a hateful, condemning disposition. Our first approach should certainly be that in loving hope that they will respond powerfully and faithfully to that which has been given to them by the Word of God Himself. First Corinthians 13 describes charity or love at length. Many things, of course, could be said about it. But as this verse before us closes, Paul describes it as the bond of perfectness. If you and I would thus be bound to our fellow brothers and sisters in a way that is complete, it must be by love. The church is thus not an organization that has a binding together on any basis other than that. The love that is made available through the nature of the Son of God Himself. And so in verses 15, 16, and 17, in light of these truths, he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Though the world doesn't present peace, John 16, 33, and though the world often militates against it, Christ said he is the author of it because it is the gospel of peace that he preaches and that he brought forth to us, Romans 10, 15. The wonderful nature thus of the character of the peace made available through The gospel. Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. And were we not also told the peace of God passes all understanding? Philippians 4, 7. To say all of that is to say that the peace that the world so often wishes, they are searching in the wrong place. The world can never offer it. Christ Jesus can. No wonder how tranquil you and I can often approach a world that seems so tumultuous. For you and I have the peace of God. So much so that in verse 15, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. That one body is, of course, the one that presents the element of that peacefulness. Some of the scriptures that I list for your consideration expound upon many of these ideas somewhat more fully. I would quickly point your attention, though, to perhaps that one in which we see the thankfulness expressed in Ephesians 5 verse 20. Verse 20 the gratefulness that should be mine and yours. Noting then at that point, our reading and our lesson tonight closes with verses 16 and 17. And in these two, he now urges to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It is not the case that we should strive to have the smallest amount of God's word dwelling in us as possible. We need to hunger and thirst after it, Matthew 5, verse 6. We need to allow it to richly dwell within us. And in so doing, we will be remade into the kind of person, after knowledge, that would be that new person, that new man that we've discussed this evening. As that verse continues, teaching and admonishing one another by virtue of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We have done that this evening as Brother Terry has led us. These songs have been so uplifting and beautiful. As we sing about the urging to faithfulness, the character of heaven, we thus are able to see that's completely in harmony with God's will for how His worship is to be done. And as we see all of that set forth, the whole conclusion is found in verse 17. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him. As we've noted previously, the Colossians had allowed themselves to slip into doing certain things, such as the worship of angels or other asceticism ideas that are not supported in the Word of God or his revelation. And here they were warned. What you do in word or deed, let that be in accordance with the revelation of God, the will of heaven, the authority of Christ, and when you do that... You'll be guarded into the way of correctness and rightness. And how true enough that statement remains today, isn't it? In consideration of that point, Jesus himself stated in Matthew 28, All powers given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world." No wonder the Revelation epistle or letter sets before us the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords. All authority belongs to him. This very evening in looking at the new man versus the old man, in which way are you described? And in which way am I described? We certainly should be on the side of the new man. If this evening you are still in your sins, following the old man, pursuing the lustful ways of this earth, put that off. Be clothed with the righteousness to be found in the renewing of knowledge. Put on the new man. Do these things by putting on bond of perfectness, which is charity, the capability of forbearing one another, forgiving one another with meekness, gentleness, and holiness. That should be descriptive of you and me. This evening, if you're not a member thus of the body of Christ, having never been initially obedient to the commandments, I might set before you the thought of one conclusion statement to the lesson. That new man and that old man.